Hello and welcome to What the CF Assistic Fibrosis podcast. I'm Ingrid Grenard. Thank you so much for supporting independent podcasts and tuning in. If you are enjoying listening to our episodes, please consider throwing some love our way. You can donate to us on buymeacoffee.com forward slash WTCF pod. You can follow us on Instagram at whatthecfpod. You can like us on Facebook at what the CF a cystic fibrosis podcast or you can visit our website whatthecf.com and you'll find all the links to our social media and all our episodes. This week's episode is with a 52-year-old person living with CF in Canada. His name is Chris McLeod. He's a lawyer and author and he was one of the first people to have Kaleidico in Canada 10 years ago. Chris was an absolutely brilliant guest to have on the podcast, and I really hope you enjoy what he has to say. Here we go with episode eight. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to What the CF Assistic Fibrosis podcast. I'm Ingrid, your host, and today I'm joined by Chris McLeod, and he is a Canadian with CF uh, who was Canada's first patient on Kaleidico. So he's got a really interesting story to tell. He's now 52 and he's advocated for CF over the years and he's written a book called Beating the Odds, 11 Lessons to Overcome a Health Crisis and Lead a Resilient Life. Sounds like we could all do with having a read of Chris's book. (laughs) Hi, Chris. Hey, great to meet you, Ingrid. Great to meet you too. I guess we'll start by, if you give a little intro about yourself, let us know a bit about you, what you do for a living. So I was born in 52, so I was born in 69. And at the time, they didn't have early childhood screening. Uh, Life expectancy for people with CF born in 69 was, I think, about four years of age. Uh, So I was diagnosed at two uh, with CF, so it was about 71. Obviously, I was, uh, you know, I had a bloated stomach and I had an underlying heart issue. So all attention was on the heart. And then they found out I had CF when I was two. But I've always sort of ridden the curve. I've been sort of like law school. I'm just ahead of the curve for life expectancy. When I was eight, I was seven. And then 12, I was 11. It kept going up, and I was just ahead of it. Yeah. And every one of the blessings we've had in Canada up until recently was that any medication that improved the livelihoods of people with CF was made available immediately in Canada. Our life expectancy in Canada for people with CF was always about 10 years ahead of the States up until the early 2000s. And then we've seen a real constricting of access. Access has become a real issue in Canada. And the gene modulators, Kaladico or Cambi, Simdeco, now Trikafta, while Trikafta is now funded, between 2012 and 2022, it's been a real fight to get access. Uh, By profession, I'm a lawyer, have my own firm. I've been really blessed that I've been able to get an education and go on a career path that I've wanted to do and I enjoy thoroughly. You said you were diagnosed at two. How did the diagnosis come about? Did they do, was it genetic screening that they were kind of trying to eliminate things or how did it come about? No, there was no genetic screening. So they didn't know about the CF genes at all. As I said, when I was born, the first six months I was in intensive care with a hole in my heart that nowadays you do 
open heart surgery on, but in those days I was deemed to be too little. And it was, uh, it was a serious issue. I, think I was given like a 50% chance of making it. So all attention was on the cardio, cardiac right. issue. And ultimately about six, seven months I came out, I was seeing a cardiologist. So that's what everyone assumed the infections were related to. But I mean, if you see pictures of me when I was a kid, I had a huge belly, obviously from malnourishment. <laughs> so it just wasn't digesting food. I had a voracious appetite because I just wasn't getting anything in. My pediatrician, or maybe it was the cardiologist at the time, really uh, kissed my forehead and said, as part of his medical test, he said, oh, he's salty. And so I said, I think he's got CF. And that's when it came about. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was a salt test yeah. by taste. <laughs> yeah. We had that with our son, actually. That was one of the yeah. things where I was thinking, this is definitely, he had a cough and he was very salty. Um, yeah. And we were sort of frantically Googling, could it be anything else? <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> literally, like, what are the signs of CF? And it's like salty to kiss and yeah. <laughs> persistent cough. So, um, yeah. yeah, that was kind of traditionally the one that people people yeah. looked at. So uh, after getting diagnosed, what sort of treatment and childhood did you have? Were you relatively well or was the heart Relatively issue? well. Yeah, I mean, as I grew bigger, the, the hole became smaller. So the heart issue was set aside other than being a present concern early on. The big issue, frankly, um, I had infections. I would take antibiotics, mostly oral antibiotics in those early years. But the big issue was the enzymes. Back in the day, you had to take 30, 40 pills a meal. Oh, wow. And it was, uh, they tasted terrible. Now you've got, uh, we have cortisone pancreatic enzymes where you take four or five a meal. I think I take six a meal and two with snacks. That was bigger game changing in terms of quality of life <laughs> yeah. back in the time than anything. I mean, we would do um, in, you know, Ventolin inhaled, uh, pulmonary drainage. We used to actually go to the hospital every day at two in the afternoon. They'd have all the CF patients and the COPD patients lined up and the physios would come in at two and do pulmonary uh, percussion, drain, uh, pummeling your chest. Yep. And then slowly, we found out later that was actually a bad idea to have all the CF patients in the room together. They're supposed to stay six feet apart, but in those yep. days, nobody, nobody knew, did they? No. So we would hang around together at CF camps in Canada, where they shut those down in the early 90s. But there was no adult CF clinic, in, at least in Toronto for sure, until early 1990-91, because it was a childhood condition up until then. Yeah. Uh, so I had relative before I needed to really get into hospitals with IV, I was late teens. Now, partly I was told to do it. I just boycotted it. I was labeled a challenging patient. But <laughs> uh, my doctor said, well, if denial works, it works for you, go with it. But it wasn't until you know, I think it was the late 80s when I had my first hospitalization out of necessity. In the emergency room, the doctor said, look, if you don't go in this time, you're not going to, you're going to be, you'll expire. <laughs> so I went in and because I always thought everyone I knew who had seen who went into hospital ended up getting sicker and sicker, never coming out. Yeah. 
And so I just didn't want to have anything to do with it, period, full stop. And so I just refused to my own detriment in hindsight, obviously. I mean, I've made lots of poor choices. <laughs> that would be one of them. But the uh, then I've been in my sort of did I've done relatively well. But in 2012, I really hit the wall. Talking about that denial thing, I don't think I've spoken to someone, um, an adult with CF who didn't go through that phase. But there does seem to be a thing of, you know, you want to be accepted as normal. You don't want it to define you to the point yeah. that it actually starts to be, well, actually, are, are you looking after yourself? Um, yeah. So we jump forward. Well, actually, before we go to talking about um, where you got to at, at um, 42, yeah. 10 years ago, you've obviously not let CF hold you back in any way and built a successful career in the law. So how did yeah. you cope sort of with that early adult life and study CF and the demands of your job? It's interesting, when I was first year law school, I ended up with another a real health challenge. And with, I think it was third week, first year law school, every semester you have 100% finals in Canada. And first year is known as a tough year. Uh, it's all new. I was in a hospital for oh, probably four or five weeks in that first semester. Mm. I just got a bleed. And it was one of my pre, up until the 2012 episodes, probably my worst it was a bleed that simply would not stop. We tried every intravenous antibiotic. We ended up doing a bronchoscopy, which is a horrific procedure. I don't wish it upon anybody. Maybe it's improved now, but they send the camera into your chest to figure out where the bleed is. Right. And, but it is, so I said to the team at the time, the medical team, everything and nothing will change. Now, I was lucky that the hospital is actually, it's a university hospital, so it's actually on campus in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, about, I don't know, 400 feet from the law school. So every day, and with the IV antibiotics, I mean, it's, you just unplug the IV and you can walk out. And so they were good about letting me go to class. I made it through. That was, in terms of the start of law, that was challenging. But I got mm -hmm. through the first semester, got through law school, and... Uh, found an articling job and have been working in the profession ever since. That was in 2000. So your parents obviously raised you not to feel that CF would hold you back in any way. How did they approach your care and your childhood, especially yeah. with the prognosis that when you were born, where they were expecting you to not make primary so school? I was blessed. I've had many, many blessings. But one is that everyone in my family is a medical person. My dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse, my aunt's a physio, my other aunt's a physio, my grandma's a nurse. Like, That's amazing. <laughs> pretty much my mom's father's a doctor, his father's a doctor. I think for a lot of people who have CF, it may be the first time they've interacted with the medical system. Mm. Uh, my grandfather, before the hospital was built, their house was the hospital. So it's really been... It tends to be called as the family enterprise. Everyone yeah. was involved. <laughs> my one aunt, uh, well, I have two aunts who both were physios. So they knew everything about doing percussion. That's great. So it was, um, the, and their approach was uh, absolutely there is no problem. Uh, nobody discussed it. No one said anything about a life expectancy issue ever. The only question I would ever get asked is, so what are you going to do with your life? Are you going to go to university? Do you want to get a job? Do you want to own a business? Like, what do you want to do? And it was just assumed 
oh, you'll go to university. So there was never, uh, you want to play a sport? Why aren't you doing this? Like no one said, oh, be careful to do it. Uh, If I said, oh, I've got sick, you know, every kid will say, oh, I've got a stomach, I've got to want to go to school. No one would say, okay, well, you got to go anyway. But their view, not expressed, frankly, but just practically is implemented. The world ruled out. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, okay, so you want to be a Cub Scouts. I was in pretty much everything. And there was never talk about not doing something over health. Mm. But with them having that background, like part of me think, you know, sometimes ignorance is bliss. <laughs> and maybe yeah, I know for sure. They you kind of think. No one talked. 100%, there's no doubt. Yeah, ignorance is probably bliss. <laughs> so they had all the information and knew about it well, but um, chose to you just you move on. Well, that's excellent because it obviously did influence how you lived your life and progressed into your career. Can you tell us about what happened 10 years ago when you were 42 and your lung function had dropped, was it below 30%? Yeah, so... 2012, my lung function, and by the way, at this time, I didn't know anything about gene types. Now we know there's a Delta 508, Delta 551. I had never heard of any of that. So this is 2012. Well, so when I did the genes get discovered? Because I'm not aware of when that. Night, okay. Night, interestingly enough, it was 1989, early December 1989, at Sick Kids Hospital in downtown Toronto, Canada. Oh, right. Yeah, because the big database is, is Canadian, isn't it, that stores all That's the... That's right, yeah. Yeah. But the, up until then, they knew it was a genetic condition, but nobody knew what gene, so there was no ability to do work on that gene. So December 89, I'll mispronounce his name, but I think it was Dr. Lap Chi Su, at Sick Kids, discovered this gene, and everyone thought, oh my God, now we'll be able to find a cure because we actually know where the defect is. Mm-hmm. Now we can go fiddle with it. Well, it took from 89 to 2012 before we ultimately see gene therapies coming about. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, the angels were on my side because I really dropped. So I was less than 30%. So I go into hospital and we tried everything. Every intravenous antibiotic known to humankind had nothing. I went in in June, came out for a couple of weeks. But by the end of September... So I'm already in there for three months. Nothing is moving. I think I ended up getting up to about 32%. At 30, they put you on the lung transplant program. Mm -hmm. And I was on four liters of oxygen a minute in bed just to keep above the 90% O2 level. So you must have had the lung transplant conversation with the hospital team prior to this point, or had you been well enough that you hadn't had to have that? Yeah, it was a really precipitous drop. Like it just, it's not like it was slowly coming and it was expected. And my view was, we're going to win. Let's, by any means necessary, do whatever it takes. I was doing laps around the floor of the hospital with an oxygen tank in tow Mm. uh, just to try and get some exercise every night. Mm -hmm. Uh, But just nothing was working. So my doctor comes in September 22nd, 2012. She said, good news and bad. I go, okay, moratorium on bad news. What's the good news? She said, you have a rare form of CF. You have the Delta 551 gene. And there's a company in the States, Vertex, that has a 
medication that's just got approved by the FDA days before or weeks before that we believe will normalize this your Delta 551 defect. I said, well, that's terrific. Jesus said, the company will give it to you on compassionate grounds because you're in such dire straits. We have to apply to the special access program because it's not yet approved in Canada. Mm-hmm. Well, the special access program denied its entry into the country for me. Mm-hmm. So that was my first battle with the government. So was that, was that the access direct via Vertex? Correct. And it so was denied by Canadian, Canadian government? government? Right, okay. Yeah. Lots of drugs. Companies will just say, we're just not going to go into Canada because it's too costly, not a big enough market. If anyone needs it, they can apply. The special access program requires three things. You have to be imminently in risking death. There, it has to be short-term, and there's no other medical options available. Mm-hmm. Then they'll let the drug in because it's short-term. It doesn't have Health Canada approval formally, but a doctor says, look, at the, this person's going to expire if they don't get it. Yeah. Well, the problem with Kaleidico on that theory was it's not short-term. You get it, and you just stay on it. Mm-hmm. And so the government, incorrectly, in my view, said, well, look, at it. it's not short-term. And they were worried, as I understand it, that, well, if the company decides they're no longer going to give compassionate use, we might be on the hook for the cost, mm-hmm. which is absolutely incorrect. However, that's how it kind of rolled out. We finally got the prime minister and the minister of health to intervene and say, okay, we're going to let it in. Mm-hmm for McLeod and then three others as well. Within 10 days, my lung function was at 60% FEV1. No oxygen, back to work. How did you get the attention of, you know, the top of government to step in? How did you okay, get their so attention? I've been deeply involved politically, setting aside anything to do with CF or drug advocacy. Just generally, I was very politically engaged. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so I knew people in, I was an active member of the Liberal Party, but I also knew a lot of the Conservatives. Good friends of mine worked in government. I knew a lot of members of Parliament and Senators personally. So, and had run a lot of political campaigns. And I had legions of members of Parliament, Senators, political staffers who knew me. Mm-hmm. It's funny, one uh, person, turns out I went to law school with, he was Chief of Staff in one of the offices. And he called me and said, oh, my gosh, Chris, what's going on? I said, look, I've got a bureaucratic quagmire. <laughs> the bureaucrats aren't letting this medication in. i got to get this thing uh, or I, I'm toast. Mm-hmm. So people moved heaven and earth and members of parliament, conservative members of parliament, liberals across the board, senators went up and spoke to the minister of health. And... You know, ultimately the decision was overturned and I got special access, mm-hmm. as did three others. And it was So you changed. and those three people, they, you were the first on Kaleidico in Canada? Canada, yeah. yeah. Because it was literally had just come out. Yeah. Like it was... Just got approved, approved in the US. By the FDA. And then, of course, the cycle started. It got approval. And once it was approved in Canada, about six months later, Vertex obviously filed to Health Canada to get approval. But it wasn't until 2014 that the Canadian system decided to fund Kaleidico for the narrow group of the 551 gene type. How many does seven that... Other gene types, 169 in Canada. 169 okay, that are treatable from Kaleidico yeah. currently. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
a few more now because there's actually seven other gene types that Coletico works for. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until 2019 that they were approved, which is shocking, right? Why would you leave behind seven gene varieties if it works, mm-hmm. but only do it for one? Yeah. We're seeing that now with Trikafta. Trikafta is approved in Canada only for the Delta 508 group. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't have a 508 gene type. I've got a 551 and then some other anomalous one, 2XZ789, like a, who knows what it is. So I would not be eligible for Trikafta. Anybody who has a 551 and a 558 is being switched from Trikafta, sorry, from Kaladico to Trikafta. Yeah, so my understanding of Trikafta was that you had to have one 508, but the, yeah. are you saying there's another one that you have one of? It would still be. It would Correct. Still work for you. So. Yeah. The, obviously, the clinical trials were the 508 because there's so many patients, it was easy to do clinical trials and establish it. But for the other gene mutations where there's very few patients, then they don't have clinical trials, so they right. use in vitro data. Right. The FDA, and I understand it's one of the first times the FDA has done this. By the way, double check my facts on this piece because I'm not a scientist. Okay, This is my layman's understanding. Mm-hmm that the FDA has improved another 72 approximately gene mutations that are not 508, but in the in vitro testing, see improvement with Trikafta. I'm hoping because I'm now, I was the first one on Coladico, I'm gonna be the last one on Trikafta because the 551 gene type works as a standalone with, the, uh, with Trikafta, without the 508. But I need Health Canada to accept in vitro results, which they've never done before. Right. I'm hopeful they'll do it. If not, I'll launch an action, I would think, say calling for genetic discrimination. And what, if you're already, what do they mean by in vitro testing? In vitro meaning it's just in a test tube. Right. They haven't done tr- clinical trials on people. Right. Yeah, so they, they haven't been had actual trials on those gene types on people. yet. Right. right, on okay. the extra 72. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so the FDA said, yeah, okay, good. Let's get it to users. Health Canada, I don't even know if Vertex has applied, but I'm hopeful they will. Mm-hmm. And when and if they do, if Health Canada doesn't, then I think it's we're obviously going to ask the court to intervene. So with, uh, the, with, with um, the approval that you've got at the moment, yeah. um, are there any other requirements for people to gain access to Trikafta in Canada? Like, is there a a sweat test threshold or is there anything else involved? Great question. So right now to access Trikafta, you have to have lung function less than 90% as one of the criteria that was established. That's, in my view, discriminatory because that... So let's just wait till someone gets sick. Yeah, it does seem just backwards thinking, doesn't it, to, to well, wait for the uh, illness to take hold before you treat well, someone. There's a line I love using it's a, from a former U.S. president said it. What are the nine scariest words in the English language? Hi, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes, I don't know how, what the New Zealand context is, but Canada, uh, the bureaucrats in the Ministry of Health can cause more problems. <laughs> like having bureaucrats that are not doctors, especially the primary, my view is it's a decision to be left between a patient and their doctor. Yeah. Not unnamed bureaucrats who say, oh, you know what, we want, you can have access to this medication if your lung function is below 90%. Uh, what, who are you? 
<laughs> what do you know about a patient's healthcare? And and after and is that the main criteria? Or is there more than that as well? Uh, that's is on the, for Trikafta. And what for age? Cladico, what age is that on Trikafta? What's it approved for? Now, good question. It was twelve and older, but I believe that it's now down to six, six wow. and older, that can use Trikafta. But many might won't qualify. We have an incredibly complex, bureaucratic-laden system of determining whether or not government will fund access to expensive rare disease drugs. I call it alphabet soup. And healthcare Only, is free in Canada, isn't it? Well, put it this way, our tax dollars pay for it. So the Canadians, we do have a public system, but it's also private. It's public and private in the sense that I have my own law firm and we have a very robust private group benefit plan. So do people so, in Canada pay any prescription fees? Yes. They do. Yeah. yeah. Unless you have um, OD, Ontario Drug Benefit Plan. So if you're a senior citizen, your drugs are covered. Many drugs, CF medications are covered for the public. But it's a real mix system. But generally, we do have your hospital care and your access to doctors is covered. And when you're in hospital, all your medication, you'll never get a bill from a hospital in Canada. We have incredibly long wait lists. We have other challenges. But if you've been prop if you want access to a specialist or a cheap general practitioner, that's all covered. You want physiotherapy, you can get it covered. Psychiatry covered. So we're we've got a great healthcare system for treating in a hospital setting or for accessing physicians. But access to medication, well, I think we have eight thousand drugs on the provincial formulary, which would be available to people through public funding. There's 17,000 drugs that have a drug information number or that have been approved by Health Canada. So a lot of them aren't covered. And that's where the gap comes in. It's interesting what you were saying from how Canada was so far ahead and then they, they become slower at giving access to these drugs. Yeah. New Zealand, as far as I'm aware, has not always been ahead and is still yeah. not ahead. Um, and your story is what we're dealing with with Trikafta right now where we don't have it funded we have it approved so again we've got bodies so we have MedSafe that approves it and we have Pharmac who basically are given a budget by the government and then they decide how that budget is spent mm -hmm. and obviously the pot of money has to stretch it, we would like it to stretch to trike after currently it has not but we have compassionate access at the moment with some people here in New Zealand but we're basically in the middle of a big campaign so the campaign started about a year or so ago and we handed in a petition of 42,000 signatures a matter of weeks ago to the government we've all been talking to the health minister um loads of media coverage because it, good, good. ultimately it is getting to the point of you know people have passed away and people will pass away at the point when yeah. they could be having something that would stop that from happening I don't know if you listened to the Trikafta episode of the podcast, but I recommend you'd probably really be interested in Ed's story that I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, and he self-funded it. And wow. due to the fact that he understands the privileged position he's in as being able to self-fund it, he's put everything into campaigning so that our children wow. will have this drug. Yeah. He literally said it changed his life overnight. So thinking of that, you're talking about your experience with Kaleidico. How was it when you started taking Kaleidico 10 years ago? How quickly did you see a difference in your health? 10 days. 10 days. 
60 up to from 30 to 60 percent wow not four liters of oxygen to no oxygen back running up hills one lawyer who i did a lot of work with said chris do you notice something i said what he goes you used to cough all the time i haven't heard you cough once in this meeting so it's it is game changing transformational so similar to ed my reaction is the only reaction you can have when you're given that kind of opportunity hmm. is to so there's 169 other people who need to call Attico. it's like if a ship is sinking you get to shore in a life raft mm-hmm. the only ob- you've, you've got the only ob- obligation you have is to help get everyone else off yeah the boat and onto shore and that's when i really started advocating i'm also blessed i may have really been fortunate because i'm a lawyer, so I'm used to advocating. I was politically engaged, so I was used to dealing with the politicians. My family was very involved with healthcare, so talking and dealing with doctors and the medical yes. world wasn't a challenge. Um, and it kind of like the stars aligned on. for you to be that patient, yeah. so that you could yeah. have the experience and then share. Yeah, it really experience. was. So then I launched a class action in one province, suing the provincial and federal governments. Uh, for violating Section 7, the right to life, liberty, security of the person. We launched another action in Quebec, another province, on um, access to innovative medicines. We're getting some regulatory changes that we're going to preclude them. We launched an action there, and then we just aggressively lobbied government to secure access. Mm-hmm. And it was a long, from we started in 2012, and it wasn't until 2022 that we had Orkambi and Trikafta. They refused to negotiate for Orkambi in Canada. We only got it at the same time we got Trikafta. Where, where do you think it stands in the future for Canadians with CF, where you now have got Trikafta, which is like the medication to have at the moment? You yourself yeah. haven't got access to it, so that's another issue to start looking at for yeah. different combinations. But with the fact that this medication exists and there's a new one on the way and we're looking at, you know, literally CF not being the disease yeah. that it was because of these medications, where do you think Canadians with CF stand in the future and, and what part do you see yourself We've, playing in we, that? It's, I can't seem to shake this file because now there's 150 people who don't have the 508 gene. So the, what I call the remnant, <laughs> the last 150 mm. who Trikafta would work for, and I'm in that group of 150. Mm. So I mean, I would help out in any event, but it's obviously very personal personal now because I've got to get on Trikafta, and I need government approval, first of all, to um, for everyone else, and then for my own private plan to kick in. How, how many I'm people big, in, in um, Canada have CF in total? It's either 4,600 or 3,600. I think it's 4,600, and 169 of those would have the 551 gene. 90% would have the five, one 508 gene, mm-hmm. the vast majority. And then some have, like me, a mix of something like 2R59 or whatever it is, and then a 551. Mm-hmm. That's my gene type. So I was lucky because with the 551, I got Kaleidico early. Yeah. But now to bump over to Trikafta, I need to get squeeze in on off the, the label, right? You know, what would be the difference? Support. What's the difference between, uh, if you don't know specifically, but the difference between Kaleidico and Trikafta? Is it just that, I know that Trikafta obviously has a 
larger group that it can treat. But from your point, if you're on Cardico, is Trikafta going to be a, a better medication for you? Yeah, it will. I, that's what I. That's what I'm. I understand because Trikafta has Kalidico in it, right? But it also has Tezacaftor and the other one, right. and so that triple combination. Because it's the triple therapy. Yeah, it's the triple right. therapy. But listen, I'm on Kalidico now and. Oh, full steam ahead. So how is your but, health now, uh, 10 years after starting? I'm around 50% lung function. I'm still, my dream and goal is to get back up to 60. It's been a, <laughs> ever since the 2012 hospital episode, I've always, I had written on my whiteboard, 65% FEV1. Mm-hmm. I just can't break that 60 barrier, but I, I will. It's just taking me a long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, hey, that's what living of the goals are for, right? So do you still go to regular clinics and that kind of oh, thing? Oh, yeah. They, these drugs change nothing and everything, mm-hmm. okay? You, um, it's a, it gives you a great leg up in the fight, but I still take Kasten three times a day, inhaled antibiotic, Palmazyme every day, pancreatic enzymes at every meal. I still have to do clearance. Like every single treatment regime, every antibiotic I'm on, I'm still on. I take azithromycin one, one a day, three times a day for inhaled antibiotics. But Kaleidico just gave me the extra oomph. Uh, you know, it was like uh, having a nuclear arsenal added to your military to attack. Yeah. <laughs> right? they, yeah. It just gave me the, the Navy SEAL unit to help in the campaign. It gives you that, that future that you wouldn't have seen when you were in hospital with the below 30%. Oh, I, I would have been toast Yeah, if so, I didn't have that, yeah, for sure. So that sort of brings us around to you writing a book. And yes. So at what point did you think that you were going to write a book that would focus on, you know, sort of your health story and resili- resilience in general? Is it something that you always thought you would, you would do or did it come out of the fact that you got Kaleidico at that key moment? No, it had nothing really to do with the Kaleidico piece. And the book isn't about access to meds per se. When I was in the hospital in those dark days, that six month period pre-Kaleidico, I'm always big on motivational videos and books. I've read everything. But they're always focused on sports and business, right? So, But there's nothing out there on sort of the healthcare piece to it. Where, listen, it is what it is. <laughs> you have the best attitude you want, mm-hmm. but you just might not get onto the other, up to the top of the mountain, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just about your willpower to get to the end of the race. You know, time and chance collide. The old theodicy question, why do bad things happen to good people? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was because of COVID. So CF is eerily similar to COVID in a lot of ways. We have to stay six feet apart. CF people have to wear a mask. It's, you end up on a respirator and ICU if you fall too far down. Those are things that CF people have been dealing with for 20 years before COVID came along. Mm-hmm. You know, careful about infection, uh, wash your hands, you know, as, as amongst CF people, right? So everyone was in a panic and obviously I take COVID seriously, but I'm not particularly fussed by it in the sense of it's not... I've already gone through, as PF people have, health crises. Mm-hmm. So the idea that there's a, a bug out there that we've got to be really careful about is sort of old hat to us mm-hmm. in the CF world, right? 
So everybody, people were saying, oh my gosh, I don't know what I don't know. People were worried as they ought to have been. So I thought, well, uh, and one doctor back in 2012 said, gee, Chris, I like your approach to how you handle these health challenges. Why don't you give me some tips? And back in 2012, I jotted down 12 points. And I always thought I might do something with it, but I never really did anything. And then COVID came along eight years later, and I thought, you know what, I should might have something to offer on this topic. Having gone through a crisis and having done a, read a lot of books in that motivational space, uh, let me pin my thoughts and experiences, and that's kind of where it came about. Mm-hmm. But I called a publishing company, and they said, oh, it would be a couple of years. So I said, well, I'll just self-publish. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. And I think I received your book last year, um, which I did really enjoy, and it is hugely positive, and there's lots of great, like, it's kind of like read it with a highlighter pen type book, so you can, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, go through the key points, and yeah, it does cover your your health battle and, and get the getting the drugs available in Canada, yeah. um, but who do you I mean obviously you wrote the book to because you felt it would be useful and um, who do you think is the audience for your book or who would benefit mostly I, from reading it you know it's funny um Dennis Mills the never better chapter where I talked about my real oh, yeah. dear yeah. friend and mentor <laughs> Dennis Mills he's that nothing to do with CF but the never better philosophy is really one I've always jumped on I loved it so you know he said Chris your story may be able to help some people who have their own health crises or challenges. And I've had probably half a dozen people, maybe a few more, who said, oh, Chris, can you send a copy of your book to this person? One person was in Michigan. They had third stage cancer and they wanted a good family friend um, who's now being diagnosed with cancer. I gave him a copy and he said it was really helpful to him. Mm-hmm. So it's less so much as to the CF community per se, uh, but I think anyone who's facing a health challenge, I just penned my own personal tools and techniques that I use, my own mental approach, because the only thing is I have CF, it is what it is, I can't escape it, but I can have full control over how I respond to it yeah. and what I choose to do, and everything in there is kind of trite and, and I is I got it from other people, it's, but it's I just put packaged it for my own use in my life. So if it can be of any use for others, as the books that I read were of use to me, outside of the health context, but uh, whether it was Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, where I've got a lot of the Stoic thinking from, or a lot of the Catholic theologians from my own faith background who I got a lot, learned a lot from, or, um, you know, on prayer and reflection and uh, just how to take on and run a business through business books. I learned all this stuff from others. So if I can package it in and just, uh, it helped me, so it might be able to help someone else. So if you were... if it helps three people, great. (laughs) Well, if you were going to pick sort of three lessons from your book to kind of summarize, what would they be? you can't control what happens to you, but you have complete dominion and control over your response to it. And you need to make sure that response is bold, daring, and fearless. Do not be intimidated by what people are going to tell you. Everyone will tell you, 
don't do it. It's a precautionary principle. It's easier to stay at home and lie down and rest than tell you to go and do something. Whatever you want to do with your life, do it. You control your response to your condition in the world around you. Uh, so that's the first. Live in daytight compartments. Don't worry about the future. Don't worry about the past. Be aware of it, but don't dwell on it. And live your life. Get up, dress up, show up. Just get up. You just never know where the break in the game is going to come. And that very active, just get up, make your bed. Even if you don't feel well, you can go back and lie on top of it again. Mm -hmm. Those three <laughs> lessons. <laughs> I do that know, every day. <laughs> control your response. Get up, dress up, and go and do anything. Even if it's just to have a cup of coffee. You never know whose path you're going to cross, who you're going to meet, the impact they'll have on your life. And this isn't just about health, but it's about uh, life. So I started this podcast as a parent of a child with CF and sort of as a, a coping mechanism, I think, as a way of sort of talking about it, finding out about it in a, in yeah. a safe way, talking to adults with CF to kind of really understand what, what mm -hmm. happens and what their lives are like and that kind of thing. And I do feel like it's very different experiencing something to, to watching someone experience something or just, just knowing, you know, that yeah. your child and... And I think that that advice in your book is relevant from our side, even though we don't have CF, but our child does. And actually, the, everybody will probably have a, a health crisis at some point. Lucky if, if you don't, but most people do experience it or that of a loved one. So I do think that what the information that's in your book and the stories in the book and the anecdotes in the book and the sound bites that you can take from there to kind of implement straight away that, you know, we can't control that they've got CF, but we can control that we campaign to the government for the right medical care. And we can exactly. educate other people on CF and we can make sure that the schools and the teachers or the babysitters understand. Like our child was diagnosed the week before our first lockdown in New Zealand, which would have been March 2020. And all of the group of mums that I know have children that were diagnosed during the pandemic and although that's a big thing to deal with because you've got this whole world thing, the whole world having to live how people with CF live oh, has actually yeah. been a really good thing for us because we haven't had to explain to people, oh, can you make sure you sanitize? Can you wash your hands? Don't kiss the baby, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's made things easier because it hasn't meant we're not awkward. So it, it's been a blessing in disguise the community in that sense and the other yeah. thing I, I wanted to ask you with mm -hmm. with your experience was if you could offer any advice to give us advocates over here with what we're dealing with of how we can best engage the public and politicians to get the outcomes we want for people with CF because the price tag always comes up these drugs are very expensive and and that's not something we can control people can negotiate but that's not we can't tell vertex what their life-changing yeah. drugs are going to cost but how can we explain to people what cf is and and just really engage with the powers that be basically to get get this out first the this whole idea that this is expensive is somewhat of it's a red herring and that gets a person paying taxes back in the game of life. Uh, and when they work, they generate. I mean, my little firm that I have with my two partners, we've got 34 people on the payroll. We provide group benefits and pay for it all through the private sector. Government doesn't pay for a penny of our Kaleidoco care. It's done through our private benefit plan. 
the only thing that works, or the primary thing, is the voice of the patient, the person who has CF and actually needs that medication, or the mother or father advocating for their child with their child willing to speak up. That was central to our campaign. And we also sued, we commenced litigation. One senior cabinet minister here said, all the others are easy to deal with. The prime minister's office, the opposition, my caucus, my cabinet colleagues, the press, the bureaucrats in your own ministry, those are the ones that's hard. Mm -hmm. Al Gore said, I agree with everything you're saying. Now go out and make me do it. Remember, they're temporary tenants in the ministry. If you're the minister, there's lifetime bureaucrats there. They know everything. Are you the spokesman for the ministry? Usually that's what a minister is. And they might, if they're absolutely committed, change one thing in a ministry with a piece of public policy. But generally, the bureaucrats run the show. Mm. Bureaucrats screw up, the minister has to resign, potentially. It's one of the problems we've got is the separation, so the Pharmac model, meaning that the government give a budget to Pharmac and then they're kind of like, oh, well, it's not our problem anymore. From my point of view in New Zealand, the government to say, we don't make those decisions, we just give them the budget and sort of waving us off Cop out. is not I mean, acceptable anymore. The patient voice is the vo one voice that matters. So predominantly the patient voice is where we've been going. And we've also, what's been added to the story literally in the last couple of months is the economic benefits. So not just the cost of the drug, but a hospitalisation of two weeks costs $40,000. Or you could have Trikafta and that person's out. And, you know, things like people, carers who then can't work because they're looking after somebody. They're out of the workforce. Their health is bad, their mental health. Yeah, and once the person with CF is back in the workforce, they're creating jobs. Yeah. There's a whole churn effect when you have productive people. It's hard work at the moment and mentally hard seeing all the stories, but I'm pleased that it's getting out there and making people uncomfortable because that's basically Good. our job right now. <laughs> yeah, it's been really eye-opening to hear the work that you guys have done in Canada and, and where you're at now. Well, New Zealand's the last country standing. It's not yeah, doing it's like everyone's so. doing it now. So come on, we're literally yeah. going to leave the country. <laughs> and we yeah. like it here. Otherwise, it's a very nice place to live. Yeah. So if people want to get a hold of your book, which is called Beating the Odds, 11 Lessons to Overcome a Health Crisis and Lead a Resilient Life, where can they get a hold of the book? Uh, well, you can go to www.beatingtheoddsodds.ca. Or you can get it on Amazon, but uh, Amazon doesn't have all the pictures and stuff in the middle. Or you can get it on Kindle. So we're on Kindle, Amazon, and right from the website, and I'll just ship it to you. If you did it through the website, I can sign it for people, and I'm happy to talk to anybody who would like a copy. And thank you for having me. My very best wishes to everyone in New Zealand who's advocating and fighting hard. You're really fighting for life, literally. And I wish you all the best. Uh, I know you'll be successful. If there's anything I can personally do to be helpful, never hesitate to ask. You can, uh, on the, just on the advocacy piece, talk to lawyers or your community there. Uh, but keep doing the great work you're doing. This podcast initiative is phenomenal. And I know you're having a real impact, so keep it up. 
So every guest that comes on the podcast, I ask them what their what the CF moment is. So this is a moment that was either shocking or inspiring that happened in relation to CF, so either for you or a broader community. Well, it'd be Kaleidico. Yeah. Game changing. I mean, literally. And obviously, my moment was the Kaleidico moment, but it spun off to be or can be some deco, now Trikafta, but the gene therapy. And before that, it was the discovery of the gene in December 89. Pretty big stuff that's happening. That's one thing that's quite bad, actually, when you get a CF diagnosis for a baby now, because everyone's kind of been taught positivity, yay. And yeah. you tell people, their first thing is to say, oh, but they've got all these great drugs now. Or, oh, well, you know, there'll probably be a cure in his lifetime and this kind of thing, which doesn't... First of all, we, we don't have the drugs in New Zealand. And yeah. second of all, I'd still rather he didn't have it. <laughs> Yeah, I, well, I do hope sure. there is a cure, but yeah, sometimes when you're first in the kind of grief of the diagnosis, the, the positivity actually <laughs> isn't very useful. Um, but yeah, we're very thankful that these drugs do exist. It's just accessing them. But um, I thank you so much for your time. It's, and I'm sure you've got, um, you know, so many other better things you could be doing with your time. <laughs> but I yeah, really no, appreciate it. Phenomenal, Ingrid. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> thank you. Take care. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.